0: Good afternoon, everyone. Could you please take your seats? Welcome to this afternoon's presentation by Stefan. Stefan, who is the lead data scientist at BCX Insights. His presentation today is looking at practical use cases in the fourth industrial revolution. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Ashley Theophanidis. I'm the chairperson of the um, wider fields forum here in for ASSA, as well as the chairperson of the IAA's Big Data Working Group. So thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to the interesting use cases that are going to be presented to us today.
1: AI and leadership. Machine learning, Harry Potter actuarial judgment. Geolocation, augmentation and pricing convolutional neural networks, computer vision, and claims assessments. Mechanical Turk, crowdsourcing, and human-assisted machine learning. Driverless cars, LiDAR sensors, and comprehensive cover. Chongqing, big data, invest first. The world is changing. My world changed at the end of last year when after 20 years in life insurance industry, I decided to move into this new area of data science and big data analytics. An exciting change, one of learning uh, new skills, but really a critical context that I believe is fundamentally changing the way we work, the way we live, and the way we relate with each other. And that's what I want to talk to you today. So we'll cover two parts. The first is that critical context, and you'll know most of this, so I'll go quite quickly. Uh, Maybe pause a little bit at the speed of light side, I think that's maybe a unique perspective. And then jump into some practical use cases, that uh, around how you can apply data science in your business. Okay, so let's kick off. The first part then is that critical context that defines our future landscape. So industrial revolutions have a habit of changing the world. So in the 70, late 1700s, first industrial revolution. Was all about mechanization, assisted by steam power. Had moved into the second industrial revolution, mass production with the help of electric power. So, electricity helping that along. The third industrial revolution, further automation, now assisted by electronics and computers. And as you all know, we're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution. And this comes along with the advent of big data, connected devices, robotics, and the increasing move into artificial intelligence. The world is changing. One of the key things that's driving this change in the landscape is the resources that we have available to us. This is a a forecast by IHS that looks at the number of connected devices. So connected devices are the wearables on your arm, the smart TVs in your homes, the fridges, lights, that are all becoming connected. Might be the vehicle tracker in your car. So moving from 23 billion to 75 billion in 2025. A proliferation of data, so 163 zettabytes of data, I don't know if you've heard of a zettabyte before, a thousand billion gigabytes. I tried to do the sum, that means, I I think that, personally, I think that's underestimated. So that's the annual volume of data that will be generated in 2025. If you think about that, it says each person, maybe we're 10 billion people at that point in time, each person will be generating 200 gigabytes of data a year. For me, that still feels low, hey, I think, As people move into that uh, connected space, we're generating much more data, but an exponential increase. A trillion-fold increase in processing power. That's mind-boggling, but I guess 60 years ago, we almost didn't have computers. Um, It reminds me of the guidance computer uh, that the Americans used to put a man on the moon. So that had four kilobytes Of processing power and or or four kilobytes of RAM and two megahertz of CPU. Now the phones that we that I have in my pocket today probably has more compute than the supercomputer ten years ago. So this picture is outdated already you'll see it referring to China Head 2 which is now the fourth fastest supercomputer in the world. Uh, In June 2000, June this year, the Americans, IBM, uh, kind of uh, took pole position again uh, with IBM Summit, now the fastest uh, supercomputer uh, in the world, or currently the fastest. So, a significant increase in processing power. Then we look at the cost of storage, significant decrease in the cost of storage. So, you know this, nothing new. The cost of physical hard drives, less than 50 cents, South African cents per gigabyte, and that's not even talking about cloud compute, where it's rapidly decreasing, although I guess you have a monthly payment. So, a significant change in the resources that we have available to us and that's changing the environment that we work in. Coupled with that, we have a significant acceleration in algorithms. Algorithms are not new. Machine learning and AI have been significant bodies of work over many decades, but there's an acceleration in the pace of adoption and change because of the available resources that we have. This first example talks about machines that can see. You'll have heard of Google's Cloud Vision API. You can now, via an API, deploy image recognition seamlessly, whether that's image recognition, facial recognition, through, uh, you'll have seen it in Google Photos, or landmark detection. Machines can see. We talk about machines that can listen, so Amazon um, Alexa or Echo devices automatically converting speech into text to be able to process it. This is also not something that's new. It's been a a field that's been advancing over the past decades, um, and you'll see it in uh, accessibility tools, uh, kind of hands-free computing, areas where Machines that can listen have been playing a key role in the past 20 years. Machines can read. This is a significant body of work, and you'll have heard about it, natural language processing or natural language understanding. Um, Early in the year, both Microsoft and Alibaba announced that they've released software that have matched or surpassed humans at reading. Now, uh, I think the the feedback in the press was that the claims were not completely true, but again, significant advancements in machine capability. And obviously, the last one, machines that can speak. So my kids love this. I don't know if you've checked out EveryBot. EveryBot engages with more than 4 million users a month. My kids speak to her. They test her, ask her her age, where she's from, try and trick her, or uh, try and get her to get the answer wrong or the context wrong. Um, so go- I'd encourage you, go and take a look at evibot Um Exister is the company with the Exister algorithms that uh, uh, program and release these chatbots. So not only just a exponential change in the resources that we have available to us, but also a significant acceleration in the use of algorithms. Now, to come at this from a different perspective, uh, let me maybe just ask the question, who, who knows what latency is? OK, so qu- quite a few hands. Uh, let me give a simple definition. I think about latency as the delay in the transfer of data between two points. So how long does it take for that trip uh, for data to transfer from point A to B? Now previously, latency was significantly uh, impacted by bandwidth. So the bigger your pipe, uh, the lower your latency, the quicker you can transfer data. But bandwidth becoming ubiquitous means that that's less of an issue. And the speed of light limitation is actually becoming a key driver in how we engage with the cloud. Speed of light, second question. So, who knows what the speed of light is? Ah, I see, okay, there's some hands. So, roughly 300,000 kilometers per second. Okay, in a a vacuum, I think you have to probably qualify. Um, So, to make that simpler, that's seven and a half times around the Earth in a second. Seven and a half times around the Earth in a second. So this trip from Frankfurt to Cape Town at the speed of light is 30 milliseconds. Okay, thousandths of a second. The 188 milliseconds that you see is the, is the, the time or the, the latency of the trip from the AWS cloud uh, data center in Frankfurt to Cape Town. So for a round trip, if you're sending an instruction that's coming back, speed of light, 60 milliseconds. So still some lag in, that, uh, in the current infrastructure, I guess. Uh, data also doesn't move in a, in a straight line as speed of light would, I guess, so some difference there. But that lag becomes perceptible to humans when it reaches 100 to 200 milliseconds we start noticing uh, that interaction. So what this does, it means that there are applications these days that require significantly lower latency. So it requires almost immediate responses. And I'll show you two examples of that now. But that means that it's, even if we had speed of light abilities, you'd probably in many instances still want to drive computation, drive that compute to the edge. And when we talk about the edge, that means here, where I'm engaging with my application on my cell phone, in my car. That's the edge, where we are engaging with uh, with the data, sending instructions. So rather than sending the instruction to the cloud, a lot of that computation needs to happen locally on our devices. So speed of light limitations driving computing locally. We talk about that as data gravity being local. So first example is virtual reality. We say that if the round trip in that communication in virtual reality, so whether it's on your phone or uh, with Vive goggles or Oculus, uh, you actually physically start feeling sick, nauseous, if that... R- round-trip latency is more than seven milliseconds. Okay, so that's uh, probably faster than speed of light. Now, to give you a sense of the volume of data that's at play, our eyes, if you think about our visual field, we probably have 150 degrees visual field vertically, and maybe 180 or a little bit less than 180 horizontally. If you do some mild compression on that, and you consider how much data you're generating, you're probably getting to the five uh, gigabytes of data per eye per second being generated. Now, if you imagine virtual reality getting to that scale and you're having to transfer that volume of data via the cloud to be able to have an interaction, you're definitely going to be sick. A different example is autonomous cars. So. Autonomous cars, and and, I don't know if you attended the previous driverless uh, vehicle session. Uh, This one doesn't even have a steering wheel, eh? so so this one you definitely won't be able to take over uh, in case of emergency. Um, But autonomous cars, you have that same context that decisions need to happen near real time. So sub five millisecond decision making. And in many instances, even in real time, and that means that it needs to use the information that's already available in that vehicle, in and around that vehicle, vehicle to be able to autonomously drive. Yes, it needs to be connected, uh, but even if you think about the volume of data, so likely five terabytes of data, which is a significant amount of data, it's more than many life insurers have in their data center, huh? five terabytes of data. Um, being generated by each vehicle per day. It's like having a data center or a rack of service running up the highway. So speed of light limitations, changing the way that we'll engage with applications. So on the one hand, we've got a significant change or exponential change in the resources that's available to us. Massive proliferation of data, Uh, significantly reducing cost of storage, increasing compute. On the other hand, we know that machine learning algorithms are rapidly advancing, both in adoption um, and in ability and availability. And then there's these changes in how we engage with data and the volume of data that we generate. So our world is changing. And I guess... That leads me into the second part of the presentation where I want to take a step to the side and then maybe spend some time on four different use cases, four different industries, um, and show how we've practically in our team applied data science or data engineering to bring about solutions. And, and I want to make that practical today. So in each uh, use case, I'll give a bit of an overview Uh, of what's possible in that space, but then I'll give a a very simple example of a data science application uh, in that context. So please uh, keep me honest, and if I need to uh, pause and and go slower, let me know. So I thought I'd start with telecommunications. So BCX, the company I work for, is part of the Telcom group. So, we've had the great privilege of spending quite a bit of time internally focused, working with a a kind of retail telecommunications data, so mobile data, as well as uh, the kind of more infrastructure or operational data. And so, if I look at this, this really just gives a sense of different areas within a telecommunications company that you could consider applying machine learning network operations, product management, service delivery, support functions. And I think that the realization here is that as you look through that list, there are elements there that you can apply to any business. So you'll have engaged with product recommenders, for example, uh, via the movie recommendations on Netflix uh, or search recommendations online. Or you may have even implemented that in your insurance business as a product recommended to customers, almost like next best action, or churn prediction, or service delivery. So uh, maybe a bit more detail on on each category, so network operations, much more about the infrastructure, so here we've done work to, in terms of how we help uh, the telecom group monitor their base stations. how do we detect faults and then lead into predictive maintenance uh, for those towers or the infrastructure? Lots of work. One of my colleagues in the audience have done lots of work on uh, network downtime. Um, and how do we predict duration of downtime? And that's something that uh, affects any company that has brick and mortar uh, branches. Uh, so. Uh, really practical applications of machine learning. The second category then looks at product management, maybe much closer to home, uh, marketing orientation, strong marketing and customer management orientation. Um, often have applications in personalised marketing. We talked about product recommenders, churn prediction, uh, dynamic pricing or dynamic discounting. Something that's critical in the telecommunications space, but still some way away. Uh, in the insurance space. In service delivery, uh, you'll all have explored this in your business as well, so uh, starting that process to engage with uh, via chatbots. These, day, these days, I order my pizza uh, via chatbot. So I don't have to phone, I'm an introvert, I don't have to talk to the, to the person on the other side and explain what I want to order. I just type it quickly, it remembers what I ordered last time and it pops up, uh, so quite a nice... Uh, experience chatbots what do you know voice interfaces uh, but even predictive uh, predictive identification of service failures So that was quite an interesting problem in the telecommunication space and the practical application was that we could reduce the the workload in the call center if we could uh, predict uh, what service failures would be happening next and then the last one, support functions. So in the telecommunications space, we talk about revenue assurance. Really, at its heart, that's billing reconciliation. Uh, so if you imagine uh, billing in a telecommunications company, it's uh, per second billing in the retail side and you've got different, different service categories. So billing reconciliation is a, is a multi-million uh, kind of play for telecommunications companies. Uh, so they have massive teams, often with rule-based uh, driven input uh, to manage that. So how can machine learning and, and AI help in that space? Fraud detection, cybersecurity, hot topics, uh, really at the heart of that is anomaly detection. Okay, so that's the boring bit. Uh, overview of machine learning and telecommunications. So the case study that I, or the example, and this is the practical bit, so hopefully you'll, you'll learn something, or many of you might know this already. So I thought I do a basic example of k-means clustering, um, and you can use this for customer segmentation. We're doing a customer segmentation uh, piece of work at the moment for, for one of our customers. Now there's more advanced methods that you can use, but this is where you start when you do doing a clustering exercise. So k-means, uh, k stands for the number of clusters that you expect. So. Uh, how many? How many? In this case, I've used an example where I'll have three clusters, and you can probably already see why. Um, the the means uh, then refers to the average distance between the data points and the cluster centroid, like the the center of that cluster. Okay. So let me take you through the example. So you start by randomly initializing the cluster centroids. Okay. So that means that you, if you've chosen three clusters. Anywhere in that data, you initialize those three centroids. Okay? So mine uh, randomly landed uh, uh, pretty much within the data in and, and reasonably good spots. Um, the next step is to then assign the data points to the closest cluster centroid. Okay, so uh, let me maybe use the pointer. So you can see each of the points, uh, if you measure the distance, that's the closest uh, cluster centroid to each of those data points. So you assign them, and then you move the cluster centroid to the mean of that, that group of data. So Quite a simple concept. Once you've done that, that's the first iteration of clustering done. Now, in my example i've probably got it almost bang on, so you don't you won 't need many iterations uh, to kind of uh, get the clustering right. but the idea is that you repeat that until there's no change in your in in your clusters, so none of the data points are moving between different clusters now you can Run K means many times, every time you run it, you can initialize it randomly, and so it'll start at a different point, and you can then test to see how good is that fit, how good is that uh, clustering. And you can then statistically just measure, and you can use some of squared differences, just measure for each each, um, run that you do, uh, how different what is that distortion how different is that again okay, that'll in this case there's a quite a clear clustering But maybe if you decided on four clusters or two clusters the outcome would have been slightly different So this happens in a two-dimensional customer space. Eh? So this is quite a limited feature space um, But you can make that much more complex does that make sense First time I've explained that, okay, I see some nods. (laughs) So, clustering is something that you can apply in any business, where you have customers, where you, uh, uh, in in other uh, other, uh, data contexts as well. Uh, So maybe a good good place to start if you've never tried uh, to do data science in practice. The second use case then, and now we're jumping from telecommunications into something maybe a bit more interesting, uh, retail customer experience. So here, our team developed a a front-end application, we called it Viper, interesting name, uh, that allowed us to use computer vision to do image recognition uh, in a product context, so visual product search. So you take take your camera, take a photo, Of an item so I can take a photo of my shoe it'll pop up my shoe if it has the shoe in this retailers catalog product catalog or the closest related item and then it'll tell me whether they have it in stock in my size and I can even fulfill uh, through that process so uh, online fulfillment of that item uh, that I've searched for so the examples that I have here is my stinky uh, running shoes. So you can see they're a bit worn. So in practice, I can now take a photo of my shoe. It'll find that online in the retailer's product catalog, and I can click and make the purchase. Great customer experience. On the other example, you have Sarah Jessica Parker, and I'd... Recommend that you go and uh, watch this video clip uh, online. I'm not going to show it to you. 14, she tries on 14 fabulous shoes in 90 seconds. Now, you can imagine Sarah Jessica Parker walking into a store, loving a shoe, but they don't have it in her size. Take a photo, find it online, either in this uh, same retailer's catalog uh, or ordering it, uh, then from uh, Zando's or, or wherever. So using artificial convolutional neural networks, in this case, to power image search that allows us to change the way that a customer uh, experiences retail. Interesting from, a, from a, a customer and product engagement perspective. OK, so, so that's the context. Now we jump into a bit more of the practice. So maybe not as simple as the k-means clustering example. Um, this is an a awesome site, if you haven't been there, go. It's called uh, Playground for TensorFlow. Uh, it's really a neural network playground. And I'll give you a, a short demo of it uh, in the next slide. Uh, but it's a brilliant way to just get a sense of how neural networks work. So let me give you a quick overview. So artificial neural networks, so let me start somewhere else. So my son, on Tuesday, he's nine years old, did a oral at school on the eye. Hey, so the eye, my wife's an ophthalmologist, so obviously when he needs to do a oral about a body part, he'll choose the eye. Uh, she's got cool props. Um, so, But the eye and our visual system is such an incredible uh, thing. Really one of the wonders of the world. If you think about how our visual system works, so we 've got uh, two hemispheres in our brain, each has a primary v- visual cortex with more than one hundred and forty million neurons with over ten, with tens of billions of connections between them that allow us to interpret what we see. Now I think the way we see and, and recognize images is the ease with which we, which we do it is deceptive. I think we've got a super, super computer in our brains that really uh, helps us facilitate that. And that's evolved over um, hundreds of millions of years, I'm sure, uh, to allow us to do image recognition so easily. But artificial neural networks really try to simulate that. Use uses training data uh, to build rules around how to identify objects in in our previous example. Um, If I look at this visual representation of a neural network, you start with an input layer. And often we talk about neural networks as having layers. Here, an input layer, an output layer, and some hidden layers often in the middle. Input layer might be if you have a classification problem where you're trying to categorize information, uh, it might be features of your data that you use as input into your neural network. If it's an image recognition problem, the input might be the pixels of, of that image. So if you have an image that's 64 by 64 in dimension and it's grayscale, that 64 by 64 will be the pixels will be the input into your, uh, into your neural network. If it's color, RGB, it'll be 64 by 64 times three as input into your neural network. On the output side, it might be one node that um, that in a, a regression problem uh, or in a classification problem, no, a regression problem uh, kind of gives you the probability that it's, a, that it's that outcome. Or it might be a multi-class classification problem. So it might give you an answer that says it's 80% chance that it's a dog, it's a 15% chance that it's a cat, and it's a 5% chance that it's a bird. So output can be one node or multiple nodes, depending on the type of problem that you're trying to solve. And then you have the hidden layers, and the hidden layers are I think, don't, not really sure why they're called hidden layers. It's probably because they're not input layers and they're not output layers. They're somewhere in between. But they take weighted inputs to, to then transform that input data into the output. When you get into convolutional neural networks, it becomes a bit more complex. So Alex, uh, yesterday in the... Um, a number boost presentation, um, uh, where they had the uh, the virtual reality, uh, scratch and dent insurance, uh, that type of concept. He was explaining the concept of convolutional neural networks. I'm not going to get into that, I'll I'll stick to the the basic outline of a neural network, but really, that gets into um, how you use filters uh, that creates uh, convolutional layers to help detect edges and shapes, but ultimately to help you better identify objects or do pattern detection. Okay, so not as much detail, but maybe a a high-level sense of what a neural network is. Simulates the brain, simplistically. Input, output, hidden layers. Maybe interesting to note that there's a activation function, so, you'll remember the, the tan function from high school math, I'm sure. Or maybe you need to use one of those paper video uh, <laughs> videos to refresh. I've got another high school math problem that I'm going to show you in the next case study. So, uh, maybe I should go and test the paper video videos. Um, let me show you the, the demo quickly. So, this is the uh, kind of a, a video of the actual site. Uh, you can see. We have a Classification problem selected, uh, a TAN activation function. I've chosen this data set um, because it looks like it would be uh, tricky to, to kind of uh, classify that, although you can clearly see uh, with the eye where the, cl- where the cluster should be. Um, kind of three inputs, uh, two hidden layers, and the output. So let me just play that for you and see how quickly The neural network, okay, sorry, there I'm just explaining classification, showing the output, uh, talking about the activation function. Now see see how quickly it learns and it classifies the data. Now we choose a different data set, different problem, leave the the neural network the same and you'll see it takes a little bit longer uh, to learn but also fairly quickly then you'll see the noise dissipate and it has really classified that outcome very well okay so Go check it out. Playground for TensorFlow. TensorFlow is the underlying architecture that, uh, that kind of drives this artificial neural network structures. Um, there's more that you can do with it, but it's a, a very simple way to kind of just tangibly uh, see how a neural network can work. Okay, so that's neural networks. So maybe, well, maybe, maybe let me just go back one step before you get stuck into that next picture. So we've done. Overview of machine learning and telecommunications with a basic k-means clustering as a customer segmentation example. Then we've jumped into retail customer experience here, using visual product search and convolutional neural networks to to kind of uh, uh, drive that business application. And now the next step is then into smart farming. So this is a, a bit of a different flavor. I guess... We're talking about the Internet of Things. So, our team works quite closely uh, with the part of BCX called BCX Smart that deals with smart devices, Internet of Things connected devices. So, Internet of Things, uh, you'll know of is uh, the wearables that you have, the kind of fitness devices, smart TVs. um, Even my alarm monitoring at home these days, I've got my Uh, CCTV cameras on my phone so I can uh, remotely connect and see what's happening, activate my alarm remotely, switch on the the lights uh, remotely. Uh, IoT. So devices that are connected via the internet and transfer data that then allows insight and action. This is an application of uh, IoT and smart farming. So similar broad overview of how you could apply IOT and then data science in this context. So let me go through some examples. So there you see a drone. Drone can be used for surveys, it can be used for uh, uh, crop yield detection, hey, so crop growth, um, uh, kind of collecting data through through uh, video and and, and, and images. You can monitor the tractor. Yeah, so connect devices to the tractor to, to be able to uh, predict when maintenance is due. Uh, you can monitor the earth conditions. So soil moisture, uh, a temp- uh, well, temperature probably comes with one of the next ones. So security, CCTV cameras around your, uh, your storerooms, uh, just practical application even in farming. And then a local weather station, so taking temperature readings, etc. Even livestock monitoring. So, uh, tracking your high-value uh, cattle, or I was in, the, in Gondwana uh, in June, I think, for, a, for a, a bit of a holiday. And I realized that the, uh, the, one of the guides told us that a buffalo costs a million rand. It just blew my mind. I thought, jeez, how on earth can you spend a million rand on a buffalo? Hey? So I would put tracking devices on all of my buffalo. <laughs> um, so IoT devices connecting existing assets that you have on a farm. So don't necessarily need to deploy new devices. So what the, the company that we partner with is BCX. They've developed a device. They call it a Raptor that you can connect to existing digital assets whether it's a fridge or an oven or a tractor, that can then understand the protocol, the data protocols of that, that asset um, and connect it to the cloud to be able to share that data. So creating what we call an edge orchestration layer uh, that connects all of these local devices into a common layer where you have access to the data. Okay, Access to the data means that you can then visualize that uh, in one place, um, and that can then drive insight in action. So that's the overview. I wanted to then spend some time on a practical proof of concept that we did off the back of this on five farms uh, in South Africa. The closest farm was in the Hex River, um, and it was around crop yield prediction uh, using heat, heat units, so temperature, and soil moisture, okay, so let's, okay, I'm going to slow apparently, I'll speed up a little bit. So, crop growth forecasting, so what we did here, three stages, we took actual sensor inputs, uh, local uh, heat measurement, temperature me- measurements, soil moisture, secondly, we built a database uh, for crop growth stages, so crop, uh, crop growth can be defined in different stages, I'll share an example of that now, and then a weather API to get some history, as well as a, a short forecast period that then allowed us to bring this data together to be able to do a kind of crop yield, so volume uh, uh, predictions at different stages. So this was the, the second high school math function that I referred to, so you'll all remember the sine curve. So a very simple way to model uh, temperature throughout a day. You'll see the red line is the sine curve, the kind of green lines are the upper and the lower thresholds uh, where growth typically happens. So uh, that's the area where uh, the specific crop type uh, would grow. The gray area then is the actual heat units that would contribute to that plant's growth. So that's one example Maybe another one would be a, a spring day where it's not as hot, so you'd have fewer heat units, the gray area, contributing to the growth of that plant. So measuring that using the sine curve method and accumulating the number of heat units allows you to say at what stage of your crop development are you now and what will the yield be in the future. So this is an example of uh, kind of heat units being accumulated after planting, so building up from planting date to bloom, to maturity, and then harvest. So, being able to measure accurately through the temperature and adding soil moisture to that, uh, what your when and what your yield will be, and then using that to forecast. Okay, last example. This is a, a supply chain stock visibility example, and I'll go fairly quickly. And this one maybe gets a bit more technical, so. Maybe good that we don't have enough time for it, so this retail group had an issue in terms of stock visibility from their distribution center to their stores. Uh, so that meant that they couldn't allocate, uh, didn't know how much stock to allocate to a specific store that resulted in dampened trade. They had inefficient movement of stock through the supply chain and also poor customer experience because they couldn't tell when stock would arrive at a specific store. So some use cases on the planning side around how much stock to allocate, use case on the logistics side around how to manage that stock and against SLAs through the delivery chain, Um, operational around people having to receive the stock and floor staff that have to deal with customers. So we built a solution that Started out with a React front-end. React is a JavaScript library that, um, that allows you to, to easily build user interfaces, so React front-end. And, and here, what I wanted to do is to kind of almost explain some of the key components that is used these days in managing some of these deployments. And I've given a supply chain example here, but Kafka is a real-time streaming solution that allows data transfer um, at a significant scale, uh, almost like a enterprise service bus uh, uh, between data stores. So we used Kafka in this example and then Cassandra, which is a, a really a, a real-time data store, a database, uh, but that's highly scalable and fault tolerant. And then many of you will know Tableau, so use Tableau connecting to this real-time data store to be able to visualize for logistics, for operations, but also for the floor staff where uh, stock was in the supply chain. And all of this was wrapped in Kubernetes. Now Kubernetes is a, a container, container platform that allows you to uh, almost ring fence applications so that you can make changes to them in the cloud without affecting each other. Um, so architecture view, not really data science, more data engineering. But of the type of work that uh, we get exposed to in our team. So here, I wanted to go into a little bit more detail about some of these components, uh, Kubernetes, but maybe you can have a look at the slides afterwards. So a container platform, microservices platform, really looking at how do you make some of these deployments portable. So uh, this solution we can port between different cloud environments, move it to an on-prem environment, but Kubernetes is that wrapper that uh, kind of helps you to, to manage uh, and scale uh, some of these application deployments. Cassandra, as I said, is a, is a really a real-time data store that's highly fault tolerant. And what it does across these different nodes is it allows you to replicate data. So at any point in time, if a node goes down, you, you actually have a, a, a backup available and then Kafka I mentioned is that distributed streaming platform that moves the data uh, between them. So four very different use cases. Uh, None of them insurance. But many of them with applications for machine learning and AI that you could very well consider in in an insurance or investments or Financial services context as well so if I take you back to where we started the critical context that defines our future landscape uh, we, we talk about an exponential increase in the resources that's available to us a significant acceleration in algorithms and Maybe a unique perspective, speed of light limitations that's driving comp- computation to the edge, to where we are. Hey, things need to happen here. We looked at some examples. K-means clustering uh, for customer segmentation and telecommunications, computer vision, neural networks in retail customer experience, an IoT application, so a simple high school math sign curve method. Uh, to help us predict crop yields and then uh, kind of a supply chain, stock visibility solution, more data engineering. And I guess my, my experience over the past year has been that, yes, the world is changing. And I've realized that there is an application, practical data science application in every business And it's important that as actors that we learn, how do we capitalize on that? How do we participate individually, but also as part of our businesses? Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Stefan. Um, very, very interesting. Um, we don't have that much time for questions, but maybe if I can kick off with one, mm. which is an issue that um, we are always trying to understand as the actual profession, is how do we as actuaries play a role in the design as well as implementation of these use cases? And how does our role differ to that from data science?
1: Mm. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, it, I guess it's something I've been grappling with over the past year as well. And we've got a, a few actuaries in our team. Um, and I think the, f- the first thing is that as actuaries, we, we have to be aware. And I've realized that before I made this change into data science that I wasn't aware. Uh, I'd come across some of the words, but I hadn't really had the capacity to learn uh, what this means for, for my, area, uh, my, my area of work. So I think the first challenge that I would put to you is to say, as actuaries, we have an obligation to understand these technologies, uh, even if it's at a high level, to understand how would the, what would this look like if you applied it in your business, and not just in your pricing, or your valuation, in your customer service experience, in your, uh, in your operations. Um, and then I think there is a clear difference between actuarial skills and data science skills, but there's a big overlap. Data science, yes, there's also significant statistical uh, grounding, uh, maths is important. I think typically much more coding experience, um, whereas from an actuarial perspective, much more of a business and a risk focus. Um, and I think those can be very valuable when you bring them together. So, certainly, a a strong role for actuarial science and actuaries in this machine learning and artificial intelligence landscape. Um, but also a wake-up call perhaps, and it was for me, that, there's, nothing that a dat- there's so many things that a data science can do that actually makes uh, what actuaries do obsolete. Um, so I've been surprised at how quick we can do things in a data science context compared to how long it would take us uh, to do that same thing in an analytics team in in an insurer. So I think that's been very interesting to see.
0: Thank you. And we have a question at the back on the left. Can we just take the mic there, please?
1: Hi. um when you were talking about your customer segmentation example and uh, using cl- k-means clustering, um, everything there seemed to be in a sort of continuous Euclidean space sort of environment. How do you deal with categorical variables like gender? Yeah, so so good question, and uh, I guess um, so. There are there are different ways of, of dealing with uh, with categorical variables. You have um, uh, Kind of uh, a lot of times we talk about hot encoding, so you uh, categorize, change them to zeros and ones, so that you have um, you can use more variables, um, and the the actual underlying uh, 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 variable isn't uh, so whether it's male or female is less important. That that allows you to actually use more features uh, in that encoding space. Sorry, not sure if I'm. Answering that very well.
0: Okay, we have um, run out of time, um, but thank you so much. I, I do think that um, if you do have any further questions um, for Steeven, that I'm sure he would be happy yeah. to connect with you um, over the next few days or in weeks. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you Steeven for a very very interesting presentation.
1: Awesome, thanks, thanks Ashley, thanks guys.